we are learning whilst we're doing all these things. So thank you for bearing with us. Um, but looks like no major issues tonight and still more people coming. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, Miriam, you happy for me to start? Lovely. Um, hello, everyone. Um, so glad to see all of you. So glad to have you all here. Um, and quick apologies. We actually did have some confusion like an hour ago about the timing. Um, but it uh, seems like we sorted that out, that most people who wanted to join are here now with us. So thank you so much for coming. Um, my name is Christina Lunds and I'm the co-founder of the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy and I am so delighted to welcome you to tonight's event on a very important conversation around whiteness and feminist foreign policy. Um, very quickly before I get um, into the content, or content of tonight's event, um, some housekeeping but Miriam mentioned it already, we kindly ask you everyone to mute yourselves um, but we'd love to see your lovely faces if you're happy to have your camera on um, because it's always like nicer feeling to see the people instead of like interacting with like a wall of um, black screens. Um, we are recording um, this event tonight so that the people who can't make it now will be able to watch it on YouTube and on our website and everywhere later on. Um, there will be the opportunity for you to submit questions um, after the initial conversation with the speakers. Um, please submit your questions in the chat function here, um, ideally directly to Miriam, who you're going to meet in a second properly. Um, but you can also tweet them at us um, on our Twitter, and that is at FeministFP. Um, it is generally so exciting we're having this conversation tonight, um, the conversation around whiteness and foreign policy and whiteness and feminist foreign policy. And tonight's event is the second um, event of a two event series. And yesterday we had the incredible honor um, to be joined by our advisory board member, um, Professor Chandra Mohanty, um, who was the reason for lots of massive fangirling um, on Twitter, that was beautiful to see, um, as well as by our longtime ally and brain behind the Foreign Policy Interrupted newsletter, Elmira Baisrali, um, and, by, and we were also joined by our friend and colleague Casey Robinson, and all was moderated by our latest and loveliest addition to the CFFP family, Miriam Müller. Miriam will also shortly take over from here um, and lead you through tonight's event. So yesterday's event um, was focusing on the very patriarchal and racist and imperial structures that the international political system is built on. And I highly recommend you watching it if you weren't able to join last night. It will be uploaded shortly on our YouTube website and our social media. And tonight's event will be on feminist foreign policy and white supremacy. So feminist foreign policy, as I guess many of you are aware, as a government policy was first implemented in 2014 um, when the then Swedish foreign minister Margot Wallström announced her country's feminist foreign policy. And soon after in 2017, Canada announced its feminist international assistance policy and the Canadian government is currently in the process of developing a white paper on feminist foreign policy with civil society. 
And in 2019, France announced their feminist diplomacy. Um, and earlier this year, in January, Mexico announced a comprehensive feminist foreign policy, making it the first country in the global south to implement a feminist foreign policy. Still, much of the debate around feminist foreign policy has been initiated and led by white and global north institutions and governments. But because ultimately feminist foreign policy must be about tackling all sorts of inequalities within international relations, um, tonight's event will be about how we can do this and how we can avoid perpetuating the very problematic and patriarchal empirical structures that we see within like mainstream foreign policy in feminist foreign policy. And I and we, the team behind CFFP, could not be prouder to have two of the sharpest um, trail places um, for this topic with us tonight. And that is Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins and Tony Hastrup. And my colleague Miriam will introduce them in a second. Last but not least, um, it is also very important to note that we, um, the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy, we are a white-led organization and that the three women um, that have started building this organization are all white. And we are very mindful um, that this kind of in a way is mirroring the very patriarchal, uh, the very problematic patterns that we're trying to disrupt. And though we're trying our best to practice international uh, intersectional feminism, we still catch ourselves having our own and white feminist moments constantly. Um, founding a non-profit non organization from scratch as women with no resources in the back means being constantly in a state of financial insecurity and anxiety, underpayment and too often self-exploitation. Um, but as soon as we had the financial resources, we've genuinely been trying um, to make space and have other voices join the team and the organization and lead the conversations. I'm not saying that we're perfect at that, um, but we're trying and I'm grateful we're learning tonight from this event. Um, and now, without further ado, um, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited um, that Miriam is taking over now and just leading us through this event tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Christina, and thank you all for joining us today. Uh, so I will just quickly go into the structure, how we have um, planned this uh, tonight's or evening's uh, um, event. So uh, at first we will hear a keynote speech by Tony Hastrup, and then we will have a, a short round of questions I will ask um, Bonnie Jenkins, and then we will open the floor. So um, like I said in the beginning, please send me your questions um, you'd like me to address. I will collect them and then ask them to our speakers. And um, also, if you want to, you can, of course, also ask questions uh, to Christina. <laughs> so we have like three people um, you can address your questions to. And after the first round of uh, questions, um, again, I will ask some questions um, uh, to, to Bonnie, and then we will see how much questions are left um, but we really want to emphasize this should be as interactive as possible via zoom <laughs> so we are super interested in your questions also regarding that in the end um, of this project we will publish a policy brief uh, so we are really interested in, in the different aspects um, you think are super important and we should address um, maybe also shortly um, why uh, this topic now and why us as, um, as the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy. So I've joined the team most recently as a strategic policy 
and research advisor. And, um, but I know the discussion about this topic has been going on uh, for a while, um, also because I've been yeah, in touch with the whole team. And um, what we have noticed also is when we address that feminist foreign policy is so wide, um, it often ends then in a discussion about in, um, yeah, representation, which is also really super important. Um, but then it ends like at diversity strategies or like empowering um, um, uh, empowering other other women, especially uh, women from the global south, but not really seeing the agency and and the knowledge uh, that might um, <clears throat> uh, might has been marginalized uh, by 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 white feminists. So. This is something we really want to talk about and to be as honest and radical as possible. And also what is super important for us is um, to talk about um, actual intersectionality um, and be aware of it and also just checking the, also the privileges that are around in foreign policy. I mean, like uh, Christina said, we are a white-led organization. We are based in the global north. Um, so uh, there are a lot of um, things we have to be aware of uh, and um, learn. Um, so I'm super, super happy that we are now um, officially um, starting this conversation and also um, commit ourselves to it. So I'm going to introduce our two speakers. Um, I'm so glad that we're having both of them here. So um, Tony Haastrup. She's a lecturer at Stirling University and um, she's focusing on the women, peace and security agenda, but also uh, in general on the um, security architecture of the African Union and the European Union. And um, she is also addressing um, yeah, um, racial hierarchies within the WPS agenda but also uh, in general in uh, feminist foreign policy. Thank you so much for being here, Tony. <laughs> Thank you. And then we have Bonnie Jenkins, which also has uh, recently uh, published with her organization, the Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security and Conflict Transformation Organization. Um, they have published um, a statement um, collected with different voices um, around um, yeah, from, from peace and security, um, but also in general from uh, foreign policy. Um, yeah, they've published a statement that people committed to fight against um, racism and uh, racial hierarchies within this area. So also we are super, super excited. And um, thank you so much already for you both um, for contributing so much um, to this discussion and also being real role models for us. So yeah, I, I let you, I let you start, Tony. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. And um, can everyone hear me? And um, thank you to the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy um, for inviting me. Um, I'll try not to take too much of your time because I'm uh, very excited to hear what Bonnie has to say and to um, listen to your thoughts on feminist foreign policy and race and gender. So taking my prompt from the uh, webinar title, I wanted to explore a little bit how I understand um, the functioning of whiteness and its manifestation in racial hierarchies and the possibilities of feminist foreign policy. 
So uh, George Yancey describes whiteness as a synergistic system of transvaal relationships of privilege, norms, rights, modes of self-perception, and as well as perception of others, unquestioned presumptions, deceptions, beliefs, truths, behaviors, advantages, modes of comportment, and sites of power and hegemony that benefits white people individually and institutionally. So I think one of the things to highlight from that specific definition of whiteness is that it is talking more about a system rather than about individuals, although highlights the importance of um, individuals in uh, implementing this system of whiteness. So thinking through this as being um, more or less intrinsic to the formation of the state system within which foreign policy currently exists, one in which uh, foreign policy is uh, there to promote a country's interests, uh, and in doing so, because of the current architecture of the international system, tends to reify the status quo, and this includes uh, the um, the whiteness that I've just spoken about, or white privileges, um, which then tends to um, want an advantage over people of color. Now, one of the things that I find quite fascinating, um, and I, I must admit that this is not necessarily how I was trained, as someone who is trained in international relations in the global north, although we talk very much about international relations, the, the most of both the discourse uh, the scholarship and the literature um, on foreign policy or international relations or foreign policy within international relations is very much designed as if it's a Western phenomenon, which is ironic given that the majority of the international system as it exists is what we might consider uh, who I call the majority world that are often minoritized by the systems of uh, foreign policy as it currently exists. So when I think of whiteness and foreign policy, I believe whiteness is born of a global uh, ideas of white supremacy that was crystallized through colonization, but also post-colonization relations. And this is what characterizes the relationship between the North and the South, the global North and the global South. I should say that I do not believe that those are perfect um, descriptors of the two constructed regions that I'm talking about, but for our purposes, they are um, useful delineations because the West is not, not anymore anyway. So at the beginning of this, I think Christina uh, mentioned the idea that a lot of us understand feminist foreign policy as uh, something that Sweden's come up with in 2014 uh, and arguably uh, this has now gone beyond Sweden. Certainly we see that in Mexico earlier this year, but also when we talk about countries like Canada and France, and indeed a lot of other countries that do not necessarily declare feminist foreign policy, but seem to have the same attributes or the same intentions as Sweden does, we can say that a feminist foreign policy is increasingly becoming, for lack of a better word, a thing in international relations. Now, with the exception of Mexico, all of the countries that I've mentioned, and indeed some of the other countries that, again, do not necessarily articulate their foreign policy as feminist, are countries in the global north. And I think that this matters, and this matters when we're thinking about the ways in which um, 
different foreign policy agenda, whether feminist or not, can potentially reify um, certain racial hierarchies. Because in focusing very much, um, when we sort of look at the content of a lot of this country's foreign policies, whether it's Canada, uh, France, or um, Sweden, the focus of this feminist foreign policy tends to be countries in the global south. Now, when I was trained in foreign policy, the idea of foreign policy is that foreign policy is an approach of a particular country that is based on its, uh, you can sort of say, domestic practices, its, uh, um, its understanding of the world, its own norms projected outside, often as an approach to all other countries. So in the international system today, we have about 193 countries, which means, you know, um, although there will be specificities in how each country engages with the other, the idea of foreign policy should be, should be one policy for all with specificities within it. Now, I do believe that Sweden aspires to this, but Canada and certainly France do not. And I do not think that it is uh, an error or a slight that Canada focuses, Canadian for, uh, feminist foreign policy is feminist international assistance or that French feminist foreign policy is French diplomatic assistance. And I'll talk a bit about why later, why I think that this is important. I think overall, while the moves towards the feminist foreign policy uh, approaches that are informed by feminism, I think, I think it's important. Uh, and I think that it is certainly a progressive direction within um, international relations. I think we need to be a bit more nuanced and reflective. We need to ask questions. Who is this foreign policy for? Uh, we're often so concerned about um, the actors. So we talk a lot about Sweden, we talk a lot about Canada or France, but oftentimes we do not ask questions about who the feminist foreign policy is enacted on, okay? So who are those countries who are supposed to be um, beneficiaries or recipients of feminist foreign policy? What does that, what does the practice of feminist foreign policy mean to them? What does it, what does it imply within their own systems? And part of why I think that this is doable is the ability of the dominant countries to ignore um, the racialized dimensions of the organizations of, of the international system itself. This lack of consideration of race and uh, our house uh, racial hierarchies are reinforced within the practice of feminist foreign policy. And they underline the enduring blind spots within the field um, as a field of study, but also within the practice of international relations more broadly. I think feminist foreign policy should be understood as a dynamic relationship between the global North and the global South, where the technologies and practices that are situated as global, for example, the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, are actually designed to work specifically for those um, countries in the global North. So in some of the work that I've done uh, with uh, Dr. Jamie Hagen at Queen's University in Belfast, we found that by virtue of the fact that a lot of the countries that um, enact uh, the Women, Peace and Security agenda often as the cornerstone of feminist foreign policy, 
um, there is a tendency in uh, the language of policy to construct another uh, as the necessary recipient of foreign policy. And othering, as has been established in the literature, but I also think um, is, is, is very much um, known even within policy circles, is a very colonial tool that determines a certain dominant self over a colonial other or an inferior other, even if this is not um, articulated as such, but it definitely does sit into the language of national action plans, for example, and the sort of policy frameworks that are drawn from national action plans. Beyond this, however, I think there are two issues that also sort of confirm this racial hierarchies in the different practices of feminist foreign policy. So I sort of think about, you know, it as the inability to answer yes to a set of questions, two questions in particular. So the first question is, to what extent does uh, a feminist foreign policy, the whole of the foreign policy of a particular country, to what extent does it actually um, reflect what is happening within the domestic sphere? of that country. And I believe that this is important because traditional foreign policy analysis suggests to us that there is always a link between the domestic and the international, that the, interna the domestic norms and domestic beliefs and practices often inform the international. And we know that a lot of the countries that practice feminist foreign policy to an extent believe this. So if you sort of see the sort of justifications that Sweden has used for the construction of feminist foreign policy, even before it applies it to anybody externally, it's very much embedded within Sweden's history, um, within a discursive construction of itself as a gender equal society or potentially a gender just society. But then we do have to ask the question, to what extent is that true? Does Sweden's um, image of itself is it the same for every man and woman within Sweden? And here, of course, I am talking about those people who are, have been um, racialized and minoritized. So the second question is, does a country that practices feminist foreign policy actually support, um, does it engender rather um, positive feminist futures in the countries and the recipient countries? And here, we can look at France as another example. France is a country that has recently declared a feminist diplomatic policy. I will admit that I'm still very unclear as to what that means. But as somebody who is both African and studies Africa, I would argue very strongly that French foreign policies have indeed been very detrimental to women in the so-called uh, Sahel. Um, when we look again internally, I can ask about Canada. To what extent does Canada, a, is Canada a safe place for women of the First Nations, Métis or Inuit communities, for example? So I think that these are quite important questions that we need to ask because, again, the argument is that the domestic is linked to the international. I think that the dominant brand of uh, feminist foreign policy certainly fails to consider very seriously the racialized histories of international relations and in a way is able to elide responsibility by sort of inserting that feminist in front of it. 
I cannot think of any head of state or any administration that would not agree that gender equality is a good in of itself, but beyond gender equality, that gender justice, uh, justice for marginalized communities, gendered marginalized communities is important. But to what extent do we actually see this happening uh, amongst those countries that declare themselves as feminists um, and those who are aiming towards a more uh, feminist-informed foreign policy? To my mind then, to, for a feminist foreign policy to work or to be true to that name, Feminist foreign policy must be invested in upending the current system within which foreign policy exists. There is no foreign policy to date that intends to do that, the Swedish one included. For feminist foreign policy to work, it must provide a transformative alternative to the current practices of foreign policy and must pay explicit attention to the work that race does in international relations. This is not new. The idea that we need to think about race and international relations is not new. And I know that in our current 2020, this has become a, a very um, prominent direction for both research and policy considerations. But I think it's important to highlight that this is not new. In considering race, countries can begin to then account for structural violence, and the impact that even well-intentioned framings like feminist foreign policy um, have uh, in considering race uh, and linking race to gender, but also thinking about other oppressive or other identities that are often oppressed or marginalized within the international system, so uh, disabled people. Um, people from LGBTQIA communities. We need to think about how um, things like the military interventions that are still happening impact on their lives, particularly in the global south. We need to think about the arms race and what impact that has. I've often been fascinated by the fact that Sweden is one of the top producers of guns and aims to enact this feminist foreign policy. Now, I think it is important to highlight that I do not think that the intention isn't there. I believe that the people who work within this arena are feminists and they do intend for a feminist foreign policy. What I'm trying to highlight is that there are constraints on the realization of what I would consider to be feminist because of the system within, the current system within which they're functioning, one that does not consult, uh, consult or understand the impact of the structural violence of uh, racism, one that seeks to continue reifying um, what I would consider to be racial hierarchies where you know the Swedes or the Canadians are um, really helpful to the other in whether that's Africa, um, Asia, or so-called Middle East. So I think uh, in my, um, it's my biggest hope that another foreign policy is possible, that there might be a different way of doing foreign policy, but it can certainly not be the foreign policy that is led by states. It has to be people-led. Um, and it has to be one that is invested in solidarity 
and I'll end there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tony. I think now we all know what kind of challenges uh, we are facing when we talk about feminist foreign policy, but also what huge potential there is. Um, and thank you again also for pointing out in the end that it should be people-led and not um, linked yeah, to, um, to the state. So um, I'm already getting a lot of questions here in the chat. So I will um, hand over <laughs> to Bonnie and uh, start with the questions. Um, would like to, to, to ask you um, uh, as an introduction and then actually I will, will open the floor. So uh, Bonnie, I mean, we heard now from Tony um, something about the theoretical um, framework of feminist foreign policy but also uh, what is actually happening in, in policy making and uh, policy designing. So I would be super interested in a personal question to know. So when was the first time and where, where you have realized, oh my gosh, feminist foreign policy is so wide. So. <laughs> yes. uh, hi, first of all, thanks for inviting me uh, to this conversation. And it's very nice to be uh, here with all of you that I see and those of you who I cannot see as well. Um, I, you know, this, the topic of feminist foreign policy is one that I have been aware of for a long time, but um, only very recently, I would say in the last year, uh, year and a half, have I been really brought into it uh, uh, a lot. And that's really because I've been very much involved with a colleague here in the US, Lyric Thompson, who was leading the US version of feminist foreign policy that we actually launched a couple of months ago. Um, and um, as a result of that, I started to get a lot more involved, a lot more interested. I really, uh, really am interested in the work right now and learning also about some of the things that other countries have done. We've re referenced Sweden, we've re referenced Mexico already, um, how they have approached the issue of feminist foreign policy and the way in which they have done theirs. Um, one of the things that, and, and it's interesting to hear the conversation, um, about it is um, understanding the way in which it has been adopted in other countries and the way in which it is very much seen as uh, very white. Um, I think that there's a lot of history in terms of, of movements that are, have been seen like the white suffrage, the women's suffrage movement, which has been seen as a very white movement, but there have also been so many people of color who have been behind the scenes, who are very much a part of it. Um, and not really being uh, recognized for the role that they play. Uh, one of the things that, um, that I will remark on is that, yes, I agree that it is very much a white-led uh, uh, effort, which many of, of the activities are, uh, not, of course, recognizing some of the work that's been done behind the scenes or predominantly at the beginning. Um, but we are starting, uh, you know, in the U.S., for example, just to, as a contrast, um, starting to work on this issue more on feminist foreign policy. Um, and I saw that there was a question in the chat about, um, that popped up, and, you know, some of the questions are popping up, as you can see, about the definition. Um, and I would just like to read what the definition is uh, that we have uh, addressed, and I'd love to maybe hear a conversation about um, you know, from Tony about, you know, the way in which she has seen uh, Sweden's and, and Mexico's as well and, and the U.S. and talk about how we have to make sure that it is intersectional and it does represent 
uh, the different viewpoints and cultures that really make up feminist foreign policy. Um, the one that we have adopted very recently is uh, feminist foreign policy is the policy of a state that defines its interactions with other states as well as movements and other non-state actors in a manner that prioritizes peace, gender equality, and environmental integrity, enshrines, promotes, and projects the human rights of all, seeks to disrupt colonial, racist, patriarchal, and male-dominated power structures, and allocates significant resources, including research, to achieve that vision. Feminist foreign policy is coherent in its approach across all of its levers of influence, anchored by the exercise of those values at home, and co-created with feminist activists, groups and movements at home and abroad. Um, and I think um, when we talk about um, uh, intersectionality and making sure that our feminist foreign policy does represent different viewpoints and different cultures of all of women, um, I think that it's important to, um, to one of my goals put it to say is to be an integral part of the work that we're starting to do to make sure that all the things that Tony has really amazingly, I mean, thank you, Tony, that was a great uh, start, um, has highlighted is in fact uh, incorporated in this because what you're saying is so true about foreign policy and the way in which it was developed. A lot of the work that my organization is doing is trying to increase the voices, the diverse voices in foreign policy, understanding that the structures and the culture in which it was established does not recognize those diverse voices. And that continues to be the way it is now. And so we have to actually make sure that our foreign policy is diverse, not only in terms of race, but also in terms of gender and, and, and the different backgrounds and culture of genders that are within the foreign policy and the feminist foreign policy movement. So I guess the long answer to a short question is that, you know, became, <laughs> I became more aware of it when I became much more engaged in it myself. And um, I think that we are going to be trying to, uh, from, from the start, do what we can to make sure it is much more intersectional and uh, of different types of women and cultures and backgrounds. Thank you so much. So I will directly start with the questions from the chat because there are so many. <laughs> I hope we can answer all of them and find solutions. Um, so um, there's a question for um, Tony. Um, I will just read it from, from Ana Velasco. Tony, in your opinion, how does the Mexican new membership to the club of feminist foreign policy disrupt, challenge, validate perhaps the dynamic relationship between the global south and the global north that feminist foreign policy entails? So what is, yeah, so as far as I understand, so can bring, is the Mexican government, can it be seen like as a mediator or as a bridge? Right, okay. So I think one of the first things to say is that uh, the Mexican feminist foreign policy is relatively new. And uh, unfortunately, what one of the horrible, other horrible things COVID has done, in addition to all the horrible things that COVID has done, is that it's been very difficult then um, to actually get a handle on, you know, what does it actually mean to start practicing feminist foreign policy? Because a lot of energy and resources have understandably and rightly been diverted to um, actually dealing with this pandemic. But from what I understand, um, does it disrupt? It disrupts in the sense that, you know, in almost every meeting we go to now, 
we're very quick to say, oh, and by the way, Mexico is the first country in the global south to have a feminist foreign policy. And I think that that's a good thing. I think that that's a really good thing. But when I think about the Mexican feminist foreign policy and also try to locate um, Mexico in the context of power, both in uh, Latin America, but also more globally, I do have questions as to the extent to which Mexico's feminist foreign policy can be uh, an impactful uh, foreign policy. Despite those questions, however, uh, I think one of the things that the Mexican fem uh, feminist foreign policy does really well is that connection between the domestic and the international that I talked about. So the feminist foreign policy in Mexico actually creates a really good framework for the government, um, current government, civil society, and countries in the um, Latin American region to be reflective about those connections between the domestic and the international, um, the, our, um, the ecological disaster that we're all heading towards, and the ability to articulate that within the context of feminist foreign policy is also saying, look, um, for all of you countries out there, if you're going to deal with us, it is going to now be on those terms. And for that reason, I think it's very important. But I think it is too soon, not just because it's been six months, but because of the disruption that we've had um, with the pandemic. But certainly something that um, I've been very keen to follow because I'm quite invest interested in uh, Global South representations of so-called feminist foreign policy. But I thought I would uh, touch a bit on Errol's question because I thought that was really, it's a really fascinating one, mainly because although I've never been thought to be very articulate to ask that question in that way, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, right? Um, this question of agency, because, I'm, because of the work that I do on Africa, it, it's, uh, it's probably something that's occupied my mind a lot uh, in the last sort of uh, 48 months. And I would say ideally, so the question was, you know, is, is, is a non-sexist or anti-sexist foreign policy the same as a feminist foreign policy? And is a feminist foreign policy defined mainly by its outputs, i.e. its objectives and aims, or is it um, about the extent to which women and girls agency guides and represents the formulation of foreign policy? And I would suggest that when I think of foreign when I think of feminist foreign policy, because I am, of course, thinking about women and girls, but I'm also thinking about the relationship between uh, men and women, the relationship uh, between the state and people who don't identify as either because they're non-binary, uh, and also the um, relationship to things that are masculinized or feminized and not necessarily um, in, in particular bodies. And for that reason, I sort of think that the output and the input have to go together. Oftentimes, I do acknowledge that um, when a country designs its foreign policy, uh, it's very much focused on, say, the civil society at best within its own country. Uh, you rarely find a situation where a country is going to sort of consult with civil society in the neighboring country to figure out how to write its own foreign policy. And for that reason, we might be constrained by um, the extent to which women and girls agencies, particularly by of those affected by the feminist foreign policy, can actually be included within a feminist foreign policy. But I do think for that reason, then, uh, more sh and much more should be done 
um, with regards to the objectives and the aims. And I think sort of the definition that Bonnie read out um, is one with the <laughs> Feminist Foreign Policy Project that I, I quite like. I guess um, the big thing, uh, as I said earlier, the next step would be, uh, because it's people focus, the extent to which that can then happen. But I'm very hopeful. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and I also like to just say a bit about the, the excellent question about inputs and outputs. I mean, for me, foreign policy, feminist uh, foreign policy is, it's a number of things. It's, it's, a, it's an approach, it's a way of thinking, it's a way of doing the actual discussion and deliberations. Um, and I think what we would like it to eventually be is something that's subconscious, that's something that is automatically done. So that when you approach a certain uh, issue, there are certain things that are highlighted. For example, in foreign, feminist foreign policy highlights things like multilateralism, rule of law, um, you know, bringing in uh, the different voices. Um, these are things that we believe, in, in addition to a number of other things, uh, it, it, these are approaches, these are a way of thinking about issues, these are a way of understanding uh, the way our policy should be discussed uh, in the room, and in a sense, also reflects what the outputs would be. You know, and I think there are a lot of outputs that, that I see um, that do not reflect um, some, of the, some of the inputs that we think we want to have in a feminist foreign policy. So you don't see, you know, as much respect for rule of law. And here I'm talking about the US, so I don't want to say anything else, but you know, you don't see as much of the focus on multilateralism, the focus on diplomacy, uh, the focus on um, intersectionality, the, rep the representation of different voices, uh, you know, the you know, the anti-racist viewpoints. Um, the things that we want to see that when we see the outputs that don't reflect that, that helps us understand that the input is not right, that we're not, that we don't have the kind of policy that we believe reflects the concepts of a feminist foreign policy. So it is both, you know, for me, the, the more you have in the understanding the approach, you approach it that way, you think that way, when you do your policies, it's automatically the way you're thinking. That, in a sense, for me, will help ensure that the outputs are the ones that you want. Thank you. Um, I mean, uh, here also, like, a really super interesting question I like to ask uh, you, Bonnie, especially, um, because it might be related to your uh, work um, um, in the network. So um, somebody has asked, how do you deal with um, actors who might use uh, feminist foreign policy as a PR tool um, and to what extent um, do you work uh, for example with men on, on, on that topic and how do you balance the, 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 the risk of uh, performative action um, and, and meaningful participation of, uh, of men, of white men? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, first of all, I would like to say that um, this is an issue that cannot be done by any one group. You know, this is something that we need to have. Uh, when we're talking about a feminist foreign policy. We're talking about one that encompasses everyone. And so it's not just women or white women or women of color or black women or, you know, it, it's really a policy that reflects um, 
the way in which we do our foreign policy. It's the way in which we all work on it. Um, so our goal would be to have a policy process that incorporates all these things because there'll be a recognition that they're at the benefit for everyone, not just for women, but everybody will benefit from this. So it's not as if, you know, if you have men promoting it, that somehow it means something negative for everyone. I mean, it's going to be beneficial for everyone. So we want everyone involved uh, in understanding why it's important to have this kind of policy. Um, and certainly there's always a question about whether everyone, somebody's real about it, if a group is real, if a person's real, if it's not just PR. Um, that's something that kind of comes with the territory and understanding, um, you know, that, it, you know, there may be some individuals or groups who think that it could be something that would really attract something that they want and not that they're really interested in it. But for me, you know, it all comes out in the wash. You know, I mean, if somebody is really committed to it, um, it uh, commitment means there's some sustained action. You know, commitments means that you will see something different. Um, and, you know, in, in given time, everything comes up, you know. And so if there's a real commitment, you'll see a change. If there's a real commitment, you will see signs of it. You will see those outputs. You will see something that reflects the fact that they really do believe in whatever it is that they're saying they believe in. If time goes by, you don't see change. They can't explain why there's no change. Um, then you can start to see that there was no reality behind it. They weren't real about it in the first place. So sometimes you may not know when they first start out. Sometimes you may want to take people at their, at their face value because you want to give everybody a chance. You know, some you may already know they're just not being real <laughs> just because you know who they are. But um, there may be some you want to give them a chance and give them a break, but time will tell. It all comes out in the wash. That's definitely true. Yeah, it's simple, but it's true. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bonnie. Um, here's also another question uh, I like to address um, to both um, of you, Tony and Bonnie. Um, someone um, has asked, I think it was Anna, um, has asked um, how governments um, who, that are pursuing a feminist foreign policy um, kind of reproduce, um, yeah, um, racist stereotypes um, through their programs they labeling under a feminist foreign policy and also how governments actually reproduce this narrative of white um, saviorism. So maybe you have one or two concrete examples. Um, we can look at this, um, yeah, this um, dynamic because I'm not sure whether all of the participants um, um, are aware of it and really uh, know what it what it really means. Yeah. Right. Okay. I mean, I think uh, from my perspective, it's it's very. I know this sounds like a cop out, but because I off the top of my head, I can think of so many different examples of white saviorism that you know my usual answer to that is, oh my gosh, it's all so complex. But I'm sort of. Um, thinking about projects that I'm currently um, invested in. So uh, because I'm looking at um, Africa and sort of um, militarization of police and uh, interventions, uh, even though I never intended really to study France, uh, France is very much on my radar, right? So I'll think about France uh, and in a way it's, you know, slightly unfair because it's the perfect example of this, but 
um, is also a good illustration, right? So France has this very, very specific history in Francophone Africa, a history that is very problematic. Um, that's not to suggest that it's any more problematic with uh, certain US activities or British activities uh, in, in Africa, but there is a very specific history. Um, so all the things that we've said about um, racial hierarchies, colonialism, is very apt here, particularly in a place like France where internally they've only really started to officially talk about race because people are French first more than anything else. And uh, so you have this country that has um, adopted the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, you know, has uh, peace summits, uh, a similarly progressive prime minister adopts a French uh, diplomatic policy. But then when I sort of look at its actual activities, both uh, in the context of European engagement, but also um, bilaterally, um, and it's a articulated desire for uh, peace, uh, bringing peace to the region, particularly the Sahel, and the ways in which it does that do not necessarily go well with the kind of, um, interventions that would promise feminist futures, shall we say. Um, and I, I, you know, I could, for anybody who wants to know, we can talk about that afterwards, but that would be the kind of example that I use where I'm not necessarily sure that um, any of those activities are sort of deliberately being about white saviorism or deliberately being, um, sexist or, or, or deliberately in, encouraging gender inequality, but that this idea that, you know, we have sort of the first responsibilities to save these people as we've been saving them for hundreds and hundreds of years, but not really. Um, and the impact is very much felt by communities, by rural communities, not um, just people in the capital. So that would be kind of one example that I think of but I can also think of a lot of other examples related to the UK where I'm at. Um, and a, I, I think it's not a story of just France in particular, but a story of um, hegemonic actors. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. And you, Bonnie? Um, well, I'm not exactly sure I understood the question. Um, is it really looking for examples where they did not, they do not necessarily follow from this foreign policy? Is that the question exactly? I think the question was about how um, actually actors and governments under the umbrella of feminist foreign policy still, although it should be anti-racist, they are still reproducing um, racist stereotypes and um, this construct of white saviorism. Hmm. Well, uh, first of all, the the um, the U.S. has not adopted as a government has not adopted the feminist foreign policy. This is this is um, what we a, a number of organizations have gotten together um, and we launched the feminist foreign policy. So we're still trying to work out how we can have a government, how the government can adopt it. And there are a number of options that were were set out in in the paper. Um, but what I can say, and I and I said a little bit this already about this already, is that um, there there are many examples I think right now 
uh, in the government, in the US government that do not necessarily follow the feminist foreign policy um, ideal. Um, there's actions, I mean, some of the things that we, we put forth in, in the feminist foreign policy are things like dealing with substantive issues, like we have to deal with difficult issues that are impacting women around the world, everyone, but predominantly women around the world, predominantly women of color, issues like climate change, which the US government, as you probably know, doesn't even want to put that in to any, any official documents. Uh, we're having challenges to uh, reproductive health issues. Um, so not only are there challenges on the concept of feminist foreign policy, there's actually challenges on the actual issues themselves that fit within the ideals of a feminist foreign policy. Uh, one can also talk about, and I mentioned the idea of diplomacy and multilateralism, which are also under attack. Um, so, you know, so we have a challenge here in trying to, one, find ways to get it adopted and the pass and the right processes for doing that, um, getting the concept themselves accepted, but also the actual issues that we highlight that are things from the foreign policy we believe under underscores are actually not being promoted. So um, we're even further back <laughs> than some of the others on, on some of the Thank you. I think I would just, um, yeah, kind of ask also people here around whether they're still with us, whether they're enjoying the discussion. So I wanted to ask all of you um, if you could use your, uh, there's like a button, uh, it's called reactions, I guess, in, uh, in English. I'm also just having it here in German. Whether you can use like um, one of the two options you have. So we all know you're still here with us and you like to hear more questions. Ah, okay, I can see. Yeah, wow, okay, there are actually a lot of people here. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Wow, yeah. So um, I, I would kind of make here like a, a cut and have, because I have one question, uh, especially being addressed to Christina. Um, so, and then afterwards we can continue with the round of questions and also I still have some here. Um, so Christina, uh, Jennifer has asked, um, since US CFFP are consulting for the German foreign ministry with regards to a feminist foreign policy, I was wondering how you address the issue that also Germany is a huge producer of weapons which, as Tony just mentioned, seems to jeopardize a feminist foreign policy agenda? Um, that is such an excellent question. Um, and I guess it sounds like in the question that is referring to the fact that um, as, um, as part of CFFP, um, until earlier this year, I was a consultant and an advisor to the foreign ministry in, in Germany, um, which I'm not anymore, but um, we are doing um, several projects with and for the Auswärtiges Amt, the foreign ministry here in Berlin. Um, we are not precisely um, consulting or working on them exactly on feminist foreign policy because Germany at this point um, does not have a feminist foreign policy and is not proactively developing one. Though um, it is, I guess, it's fair to say that it's making important steps towards a at least gender interested, gender equal foreign policy, um, but not feminist in the sense as we're discussing here. 
Um, so the question about arms exports um, is very important because um, I guess many of you um, are aware, like the, the person who asked the question, that Germany is one of the top producers of arms um, globally. And in fact, um, the, the numbers about um, global militarization and arms exports that um, were published by CIPRI, the Stockholm Institute for Peace Research, in April this year showed that not only was last year, 2019, um, the year with the sharpest increase in international arms exports within a whole decade, um, but on top, Germany really led this development within Europe. Um, so that is a very important question. Um, so what we are doing, um, and in general, um, despite being a small organization, we are focusing a lot on, 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 on the future of weapons, on like stopping killer robots, but also on the international arms trade, on nuclear policy, on, um, on, on export control. And um, to give one concrete example, currently we are doing um, a project with Greenpeace um, looking, at, um, looking at German arms exports and the, the impact um, they have on different countries. Um, so our approach really is, um, so of course we're working with like different ministries and we're always there and happy to work with them and support where, where both parties believe um, it's beneficial. Um, and at the same time, um, we take our role as, yeah, as activists, as people criticizing the, the current foreign policy um, system seriously um, and trying to find um, ways how we can constructively criticize what's being done at the moment and show where problems are so that ideally um, they will be fixed. Because when it comes to um, the, the arms export, um, for example, there's an international treaty, it's called the Arms Trade Treaty, and under this treaty, um, um, weapons should not be allowed to be delivered if, for example, there's a risk um, of gender-based violence. Um, and many governments in this world, including Germany, say we do not have to assess this properly on top because it's already covered by the human rights um, um, considerations. And, um, and we are saying um, to really implement this treaty and take kind of a feminist approach, at least within the current system, before we abolish it, ideally, um, to take it seriously, um, we need to change the practice. And um, so we are we're trying to find um, examples. We have like a, a, a different people working with us on the ground in the countries um, we are, we're looking at. Um, we're, we're trying to show like this is happening. You cannot continue to say um, that we don't have to look at it. Um, yeah. Thank you, Christina. I think also uh, Nina, who is um, also here on the call and also part of the Center for Feminist Forum policy team, uh, would like to add something on that. Nina, are you here? Yes. Yes, I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, I sorry didn't for know. just Hello. Um, I've been intentively listening, but actually, um, I'm I'm trying to finalize the report that Christina just mentioned. So this is why I'm a bit in the in the background. Um, but I just wanted to add something um, on the role of German arms exports in our work. Um, and so we try to continuously address this issue also as part of the Women, Peace and Security agenda. And we try to highlight that Germany cannot have Women, Peace and Security as a focus area in the UN Security Council, but not address the, the, the arms, um, arms export. And for example, in I think in June, together with 16 other German NGOs, we published um, a report on Women, Peace and Security 
and how the third national action plan in Germany should look like, because Germany is currently developing its third national action plan, which will um, um, will start in, in January 2021. Um, and one of the um, uh, uh, recommendations from us is actually to work to a total stop of arms exports um, as part of the Women, Peace and Security agenda. Um, so we try to call out that it's not enough to just work on increasing the participation of women in the arms control uh, processes or discussions and so on, but you actually need to, to change the policies. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Tina, for your work and also for the comment. Just out of the nowhere, you popped up and delivered that statement. Thank you so much. Yeah, I just yeah. like I just want to add that I think yeah. it's that, that that making that connection is so important about you know, you know, having having thirteen twenty five and having the you know, uh, but at the same time the arms and the, that you have to that you're selling and yes, having women sitting there, but you're not. It's it's really having a comprehensive policy that if you, that being consistent, um, which is which is a problem for a lot of governments. So thanks for your work you do. Um, and is the um, as this is also like uh, a session of self reflection, and we want to learn and uh, check our privileges. I also wanted to uh, um, invite you all. Um, to uh, really, really quick um, check your privileges or check your uh, surroundings um, uh, um, round. So um, I was wondering, um, uh, I'm going to, to ask a question and I just, um, if you say yes, please stand up or even just uh, use the reaction button. Oh, <laughs> it depends what, what you want to do and then also where you are. So I would like to ask all of you whether you consider yourself working in a feminist environment. So if it's a yes, please stand up or use the reaction button. So I stand up. When you say the environment, <laughs> you talk about an organizational environment? Yeah, or working. Okay. Yeah, working environment. Okay, so how many are really working in a feminist Okay, there are some. This is good. <laughs> and how many of you um, are working actually in a, a wide-led organization or um, wide-led working environment? Okay, this is a lot. Yeah. Okay. So we see this is definitely uh, yeah, an issue and I'm super happy that you all um, are joining the discussion and bringing the, the, the talking points and the aspects we are dealing with today to your uh, working environment or your studying environment. Um, so I'm looking at the time, we still have 20 minutes, so I will make a really short, short run of questions um, because then we will head over to the final statements. Um, what uh, about this so what what we have learned today and what we can yeah discuss maybe tomorrow with our colleagues um, in the office or via zoom or with our friends so here's a really interesting question from Meredith I think I'm wondering why we only talk about a feminist foreign policy and not about feminist domestic policies um, because it seems to me that this could run the risk of reproducing the view um, that Western states don't need feminist policies that look at national issues, but only outward facing feminist policies. 
So uh, I think both of you have already mentioned a little bit of that in the beginning, um, but uh, maybe you could briefly um, repeat or even get into more details uh, why this is linked and why we are not only talking about foreign, foreign policy. Bonnie, you would like to start? Sure, why not? Um, well, for me, there, there are a lot of things that we consider foreign policy that really have domestic impact. Um, you know, I see a lot of what we're talking about, because I mentioned, for example, the issue of climate change. You know, that is both a foreign policy, but also clearly has domestic impact. What we do in a country has, has impact overseas, and what happens overseas has impact domestically. Um, there is often a um, false distinction between things that are international and things that are domestic. And I think that's increasingly the case today. If we look at the type of threats that we're facing, so many of them which are environmental um, because of climate change, for example, infectious disease, another example. Um, so many of these issues are, are you know, domestic and international. So I think you know, even though we talk foreign policy, there has to also be an underlying recognition that some, a lot of the issues that we're talking about do have domestic, do have domestic effect and domestic impact. Um, when we talk about racism, when we talk about, um, you know, how foreign policy affects uh, women of color around the world, these, these are domestic and international issues. Uh, when we talk about um, the way in which we approach uh, issues, as I said, the mind that goes into the way in which we think about these issues. They are, yes, when we sit around the table, we talk about foreign policy issues, it's a foreign policy setting. But the way in which we need to talk about them is the same domestically. We should still be talking about how do we, how do we work together diplomacy in a domestic, in, in domestic setting on domestic issues, theoretically. So I think, you know, we always have to think in terms of the fact that even though we say foreign policy, there's a lot of domestic impacts in what we do in foreign policy. Uh, and there's a lot of things that we do in the North that has obvious effects on the South. Uh, and we need to think about that in the way in which we approach our work. So that's, that's what I'll say shortly. Thanks. And I will say we do a lot of thinking about that. We have something called redefining national security that we do in my organization. It's all about how we have to look at um, how, our, how we define our security, how we define our security domestically is just as important as how we look at national security issues. Thank you. Tony, um, what are your thoughts on that? Great. Uh, I mean, from my perspective, uh, I don't know who asked the question, but they're uh, absolutely right. I mean, the reason uh, to my mind that feminist foreign policy can be problematic in the ways that we've discussed is precisely because domestic policy is problematic. And in a way, um, uh, countries are able to paper over the challenges within the domestic sphere by having a good foreign policy, whether it's feminist or not. Now, in the construction of feminist foreign policy, as I've understood it, so sort of thinking about the processes in uh, Sweden, um, in Canada, I'm not familiar with uh, France, but certainly Mexico as well. It's had to rely on um, domestic civil society or organizations in constructing what is called feminist foreign policy or feminist international development assistance. And undoubtedly, a lot of the issues that they raise 
have to do with the domestic context, not just the international. So I think discussions about feminist foreign policy can certainly provide the space to have these kinds of conversations. So if you sort of think, for example, in Canada, in the last uh, National Action Plan for WPS, there is an explicit acknowledgement of the kinds of uh, injustices that First Nations women have faced and um, forcing the government to sort of think about provisions, even though that's um, within, obviously, uh, Canada itself. I mean, there are still issues with that, um, a lot of the racialized issues that we've talked about. But nevertheless, I think it was an important moment to sort of acknowledge the specific type of relationships that Canada had uh, with these First Nations people. So I agree with Bonnie. It's a very false dichotomy to sort of think that, uh, that there's a specific difference between domestic, well, I mean, there are differences, obviously, because there are always contextual differences in any policy area. But I think it's a false dichotomy to separate them. And as far as I know, most people who do foreign policy um, wouldn't, even those who don't do feminist foreign policy. That's true. So before we close kind of the, the session with your final statements, um, Tony and Bonnie, um, I would like uh, to invite Christina um, to um, point out so um, the so what <laughs> a section of our uh, discussion. So what, what can we take away also from for our organization, which is dealing with uh, feminist foreign policy, what we have learned um, from today. And before I hand over to Christina, um, I'm not sure I can't see her anymore, but I think she's still here. Um, Tony and Bonnie, I would like uh, you to, to think already about the final statement, um, uh, um, answering the question. So when we, for example, we are going to meet like in 10 years from now and talking about the same issue, what could have been changed or is it like still, still the, the, are we still facing the same challenges uh, from today? So maybe you could include this into your um, final statement and uh, I hand over to Christina. Thank you. Um, yeah, indeed, I just dropped my Zoom. Um, just stopped, but I'm back, thank God. Um, yeah, so what now? Um, there is, um, I mean, there's lots to consider and lots to do and lots to unlearn. Um, and I mean, being socialized in the society that we have been um, means that we grew up with um, kind of being indoctrinated with certain mindsets and ideas and ways of thinking. And it's an active process that we need to commit to, to unlearn all the, the, the ways of um, like discriminatory thinking and acting um, that we that I myself, that we as an organization also um, exhibit. Um, and as was rightly pointed out by, um, by our speakers, by Bonnie and Tony, um, feminist foreign policy um, is a, it's, it's a big concept and idea that really needs to integrate um, all sorts of inequalities and in the way that um, society's foreign policies have been built on on racist ideas and the peace of Westphalia and like the Western centric view and, um, and who's been like telling stories and, um, and why is the concept of aid even a thing and can we still keep it if we're doing feminist work and um, it's really about rethinking all different aspects about how we're doing 
trade um, and what about why are so many countries in the global south in debt and how what how is it linked to colonialism and um, and why are most weapons produced in the north and being sold to the south and what does it mean for for conflicts and um, and and migration and climate policy like who's producing the problem and who's mainly suffering and um, all these areas that I just mentioned within foreign policy and international politics, they're hugely influenced by, um, by, 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 by racial inequalities and by, um, um, yeah, by, by an imbalance of power distributed in our world. Um, so for us as an organization, it, um, I think it means um, to really invest in learning about all these structures to then be able to identify them and then be able to invest even more knowledge production and collaborating and organizing into coming up with new visions. Um, um, yeah, and it's, yeah, it's complex work, um, but it's, um, um, but, but it's important. And that's why we started this organization in the first place. And we're trying, um, yeah, we're trying to do a good job and often failing sometimes it works and yeah just trying to go continue yeah yes yeah like you said like it's uh complex but it's also our responsibility to con like to continue to learn and um yeah question our our structures um that we might have seen as as standard or or normal we are working with Okay, so Tony and Bonnie, are you ready for the final statement? Um, so I leave it up to you. Uh, who would like to start? Um, and then afterwards, like as I already wrote into the chat, um, I also want to say thank you to uh, all the participants. There were so many interesting questions. I'm sorry we couldn't ask all of them, but we really want to make sure that they uh, we will kind of uh, can address them in our policy brief. We will um, publish. So Tony and Bonnie, you have the floor. Uh, I can go first. So I felt bad because we weren't able to get to a lot of really interesting questions and discussions. And I thought, okay, I can use this um, to sort of wrap up. So some of the themes that came up was around um, inclusion. Who gets to sort of speak? in uh, the domain of uh, feminist foreign policy, given the fact that we've identified that it is um, quite white and it still very much favors um, already dominant groups. I think that the answer to that is really to the, the people who already occupy those spaces, but also um, that there has to be a willingness to um, go outside perhaps our comfort zones so, you know, speaking for myself, I'm an academic. Most of the time I am speaking uh, to academics. Um, I am probably getting out of my comfort zone a bit because of um, discussions and engagements around the women, peace and security agenda. But beyond that, uh, I'm most comfortable um, uh, hanging out with my students uh, mainly. Um, but I think that um, the only way forward uh, to the kind of people-centered ideas about foreign policy is by those people who already have spaces within uh, institutions um, to create space for other people who might not already be included. And I think that um, it's the only way to change mindsets. 
And this sort of brings me to the, the question that Megan had about um, Northern Ireland specifically. I, I, I've often been quite fascinated uh, living in the UK, um, the differences in the ways that um, the UK and Ireland think about women, peace and security and the idea of post-conflict space. So both Ireland and the UK are invested in post-conflict settings, in supporting women's rights in post-conflict settings. But interestingly enough, part of the reason that Northern Ireland, uh, sorry, part of the reason that Ireland, Republic of Ireland is interested in that is because it considers itself a post-conflict society because of Northern Ireland. But the United Kingdom does not consider itself a post-conflict society. And so a lot of its uh, engagements with WPS and I think therefore the, its possibilities for feminist foreign policy are very externalized and then justify some of the more problematic um, policies domestically uh, in GB, but also um, related to um, the United Kingdom as a whole. I think that we are, 2020 has been an eye opener. So, I, you know, I, I, I remember last year that some not so great things happened, but this year has so far eclipsed it so much that I barely remember anything from 2019. Uh, but one thing that has stayed with us that has been here is sort of this rise of um, what some would call right the right wing populism. But I'm not necessarily sure that it's the populism part that is the problem. But we are certainly we certainly have movements that are anti-feminist, um, uh, racist, and uh, quite uh, resistant. And I don't think that that's going to go anywhere soon. But at the same time, these people as just as we are, cannot ignore the fact that in the context of COVID specifically, you have all these news articles that somehow are very invested in asking, you know, why, why aren't Africans basically dying, right? You know, Africa, the one country of Africa, you know, why, you know, why, why, why is COVID not affecting them so much? And we're not, we can't unsee that. We cannot see the ways in which these questions are being asked, the way in which it's been framed, because at the same time, when we look within our own countries in the global north, we have to ask the question, why is it that minoritized people are dying at the rate at which they are? So although there is this backlash and there is this anti-sentiment, um, I think that um, things are so far in the open that links the domestic to the international that we can no longer put it back in a box. And that's where I have the hope. I'm not necessarily sure that I have the answers as to how you enact that in policy terms, but you know, I think that there's certainly a space for further conversation about how you take that forward. Thank you. And Tony, your thoughts on 2030, on feminist foreign policy? In 2030. <laughs> um, well, I, uh, I think certainly, maybe this goes back to Kate's earlier question about branding. I think we will probably see more countries um, take on that feminist foreign policy. I think um, they might use it as a branding exercise to start with, but I also know that because they will be obliged to engage with uh, communities, uh, civil society organizations, they will be challenged on what that means. We're not very far from 2030. Perhaps the older I get, the, the faster time goes. So I, I don't think that 2020, 2030 is that far away. 2030 tends to be this weird date. We have it in development as well. Um, 
I don't think that the world would have changed significantly by then. So that's my pessimistic thing of, of, of the day. Um, but there will certainly be more countries that are leaning into uh, feminist foreign policy, and therefore there will be more opportunities to challenge our governments to um, act in a way that is transformative for uh, foreign policy practices. Thank you. And Bonnie? Yes, um, I'll be brief. And first of all, I just want to thank uh, Christina, Nina, Miriam for uh, being a, a wonderful moderator. Um, and also Tony for sharing, uh, can't say the stage, I guess say the, the screen uh, with me on this. I really appreciate it. Um, this has been a great discussion. Um, it's, it's wonderful to hear um, about, from all of you who are working on these issues about the different perspectives that everyone has on feminist foreign policy and the way in which it's being implemented more or less in different countries and some of the challenges and also the need to, to um, uh, to make sure that there is more diversity in the actual discussions and, and themselves. Um, for me, uh, you know, foreign, foreign policy, you know, encompasses uh, things like the ideas in which we, brought, we bring them, these ideas forward, the policy forward, the processes in which we can um, make it happen and, and, and convince governments to actually adopt them and implement them the substance, which are the actual, uh, some of the actual issues in addition to the concepts of uh, foreign, foreign policy, but what we're actually trying to make a change uh, in, which are the actions themselves, as I said, and also allyship, you know, working with everyone on this issue, um, men and women and others, others alike on this. And of course, the uh, endurance and perseverance to, to make this work, because it's not going to be obviously something that's adopted easier, easy or once adopted, or becomes a government um, a, a policy that is actually implemented uh, in the way it should be. Um, I, you know, I, it's, it, there are many things that we need to do. We have a long way to go um, uh, in order to really see feminist foreign policy a part of the policy of a particular government um, and having more governments actually look into this and adopt it. But I do feel some inspiration um, in terms of the change and the effort by those to make change and to seek change and uh, what we are seeing in 2020, which we have to continue and we have to sustain into the future. Um, for me, 2030, you know, it'd be nice if there was actually not even a reason to say feminist foreign policy, that that is our policy. Um, and our policy does encompass the ideas and the processes and the actions and the input and the output that we want to see uh, reflected in all of the definitions of foreign policy, foreign policy that are existing right now and will in the future. Um, so for me, our success is not to even have it just say, this is our policy and it encompasses what's, what's in them. Um, I guess before I leave, I should, and I haven't, and I want to thank um, Miriam, for raising this when you started um, the work that my organization is doing with the Organizations and Solidarity Statement, um, which is trying to get organizations to sign up to the 12 commitments to make change on, on racism and discrimination um, and encompasses so many of the ideals uh, that we seek in feminist foreign policy. Um, so, you know, that, you know, information, of course, is on 
the website, but I do want to at least mention that because I really forgot to say anything about that during the, during the discussion. Um, but thank you again, everyone, for this. This has been great. I, I always learn from these type of experiences, um, you know, and find ways in which this, what all of you are doing is inspiring for me and keeps me going. So thanks again for hosting this and thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much. And I would love to close uh, the session with the statement uh, you said before, Bonnie. So there is no commitment without sustainable action. I really love that. And I think this is really something we should repeat and uh, probably people if they talk about their um, working on feminist foreign policy. Because yeah, like you said, by the end of the day, we see who is really committed and who is really willing yeah, to work on that. So thank you so much, everybody, for joining. Um, I wish you a wonderful evening, afternoon, morning, wherever you are. And yeah, stay tuned and keep up the discussion. And we are really looking forward um, yeah, to hearing from you all and um, yeah, pursuing a feminist foreign policy. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Bye.